church, and it is God's church. And so that means we have to do things as God wants us to. We can't decide how to do church. God tells us in his word how to do church. And so as this series has been going on, we've been looking into God's word, and we've been seeing how God wants us to be as a church, how God wants us to behave as a church. And for a lot of the time, we've been in this letter to Timothy. There's two letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy and and 2 Timothy, and we've been in this first letter of Timothy. In this first letter of Timothy, the Apostle Paul is like the mentor, and he's writing to his uh, intern, if you like, Timothy. Timothy's, I guess, a lot more than an intern. He's a pastor of the church in Ephesus. But Paul is concerned for him and looking out for him. And he's guiding him with how to behave and how the church should be. And so as we've been going through this book of Timothy, this letter of 1 Timothy, we've been asking ourselves the question, what does this tell us as a church? What should we be learning as a church? And this, uh, just this last week, we were in chapter 5 of uh, 1 Timothy, and we were realizing that within church there are relationships. And there's a relationship with each other. And our relationship with each other needs to be like a family. It needs to be a family with respect for one another. We are to respect the older men. We are to respect the older ladies. We are to treat the younger ones, our same people, like brothers and sisters. There's a responsibility to have purity in how we relate and how we link with each other. And then we saw that we have a responsibility as a church with the needy. That chapter 5 has a, a lot of, of teaching about widows. Widows were the needy people of that time. And that's why we had the special announcement again this morning to remind you and to remind us as a church that we have a welfare team. And that's because as a church we have a responsibility to those who are needy, a responsibility to those who have financial need. But it's not just financial need. We have a responsibility to each other's needs of of friendship, of care. We need to be looking out for each other. And then the church needs a a positive, right relationship with its leaders. We need to be generous to their leaders, to to take care of them so they can focus on their work, particularly those who preach and teach. We need to treat them fairly. Sometimes there can be accusations made against church leaders, and they need to be treated fairly. And then we we want to avoid leaders who go off and do wrong, sinful things and cause problems. And the way to do that is to be careful how they're appointed. So we were looking at church relationships. And in some ways, this, this, this passage we'll be looking at this morning, chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, carry on from that. You see, there was, there was a very difficult relationship to be managed in the early church. Back in Ephesus, there would have been slaves and masters worshipping in the same church together. And there would be lots of slaves. And so there's this difficult relationship. And so we have these two verses here in chapter 6 where Paul is addressing to Timothy this difficult relationship that can happen and what they need to do about it. 
And so that's where, we're, where we are this morning. We're looking at these uh, two verses in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And I want to make four points, uh, just very simple introductory points, to put this into context. And I've already said it in some ways because Paul is addressing this. But it's, it's thought that, and it's, it is a fact that a large proportion of the problems in the early church with relationships was the result of slavery, was the result of masters and slaves, or masters and servants, or bosses and employees. And Paul is speaking about the issue because it is affecting the gospel witness of the church. So this passage is about this relationship and how it affects the gospel witness of the church. The first century apostolic church, that's the church that we read about in the Bible at that time. It's not a church we're thinking about now. The apostolic church was that period of time then when the apostles were there leading the church. They weren't greatly interested in social reform. We don't see a lot about social reform being done as an activity of the church. What the apostolic church, what this early church was really concerned about was spiritual reform, its gospel witness, and spiritual reform, gospel witness, went on to make sure that society was changed. The world got turned upside down, not because there was a, a movement to make society better, but because God's power worked in society through the power of the gospel changing people's lives. And as people's lives were changed, as people lived Christ-like way, as the gospel took root, then social reform happened. But the apostles didn't see their job as promoting social reform. What they saw their job to be and what they saw the job of the church was, was to be looking for spiritual reform and gospel witness. Thirdly, in our quick notes at the beginning, this passage is not condoning the practice of slavery. Full stop. This passage cannot be used correctly, righteously, godly, or in the intention of what God's word says to say that slavery is correct. Tragically, in the past, it's been used for that wicked purpose. And it's wrong. That's not what this passage is saying. We also have to understand something. and This is our fourth point of introduction is that there's a huge difference between first century slaves and the slave trade of the 15th and 16th century. And often when we think of slaves, that's where our minds go, yeah? Our minds go to that wicked time in the 15th, 16th century when slaves were traded, when Africa was harvested of human life, violently, oppressively, racistly taken, and subserviently put into captivity. 
Now, first century slavery, as we can see it in God's word, and as history tells us, is very different to that. Now, I'm not condoning first century slavery at all. But if we want to understand this passage, and I trust you do, we need to see it through the eyes of the first century. We need to see it and understand it as they would have seen it and understand it. And as we get an understanding of what they saw, then that will help us to understand what it is saying to us now. Yeah? So big headline, slavery is wrong, full stop. This passage is not condoning slavery. But this passage has something to say to us as a church about our relationships. So my first heading, main heading that we'll be looking at, and this gives us the context, is slaves in the first century. Slaves in the first century. And I I must confess that as soon as I hear the word slave, there are images that come into my mind. Maybe for you it's the same. And there's there's this shocking imagery that comes out from the history books of what happened in Africa and the Americas and around the world. Or maybe when you think of slavery, you think of the Israelites in slavery and you think of the pyramids and you think of the oppressive pharaohs on them. Or maybe you're more romantic about the whole issue and you think of Spartacus. Some of you have probably seen that great film or the different films about Spartacus, the slave that led the the uprising. I I don't know what you think of, but often that's where our minds go. And and that's sort of a slave that was very much in the lines of of the Greek philosopher uh, Aristotle. And Aristotle, uh, a few hundred years before the first century, said this. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. This guy was a deep thinker, and I find this shocking from a philosopher, but here we are. This underlines why philosophy is rubbish in some degrees. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate Slave. A few hundred years before Christ came, that was the idea of slavery. Now, these are examples of what would have been understood of, of a slave before the first century or many years after. And so those images are are, are the wrong images. And what we need to understand is what was actually happening in the first century, particularly first century Roman culture, where this letter of 1 Timothy was written to. In the first century, lots of things had changed for the better. Now, I'm sure, sadly, tragically, because of sinful mankind, there would have been people who still would have had Aristotle's mindset and saw their slaves as a living tool. And certainly, people that were in slavery because they were criminals and they were held in captivity and put to hard labor, their situation and their treatment would have been very, very harsh. Very harsh. 
But the reality was this, is normally a slave in Roman culture could count on being set free. And this is something that I learned. This is something that I wasn't aware of. I had in my mind's eye that once you were a slave, that was it. You were a slave and, and, and until you died. But no, 50% of slaves in this Roman culture were freed before the age of 30. Now, I'm not belittling or saying that's right, yeah, uh, for a moment. But what, what I am trying to say is, is to get us to see what was going on there. And there were very few slaves into old age. Most slaves ended up having their own freedom. Manumission is the word that they used for it, and there was a way of going about it. And, 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 to, and in the reading we had earlier, Paul said, if you can get your freedom, get it. it. It was part of a slave's life that they could be freed. Now, now, slaves could remain the possession of his master, but at the same time, own his own property. He could have investments. He could uh, work other jobs along, sort of having a side hustle, if you like. He had his master's responsibilities, and then he or she had a side hustle, and they could do their own things, and they could save money. And, and that money could be used to purchase their freedom. And so, yes, they were... They were owned, they were a possession, but there was a way of escape. There was a way that this went through. But very often, people preferred to be a slave rather than free because being a slave often offered security and status. There wasn't a social status as being a slave. That the slave's social status was determined by the social status of their master. So if you worked for an important person in society as a slave, you had an important job, you had an important role, and, and you were seen as somebody important. Now this doesn't sort of compute in our minds, does it? Because we think of a slave being the lowest of the low. That wasn't the case. There were slaves there who would have been doctors. There were slaves there that would have been architects. There have been slaves there that would have been uh, working on uh, agricultural projects. There have been slaves that have been working in the houses. And of course there were slaves that were working in labor camps and very hard conditions. So I'm not saying it was all perfect. But we do have to see it in the context of what it was. And, and there was many different ways that people could come into slavery. Uh, some people were, were born into slavery. And I think this is often where we see a lot of them coming through because most of the slaves were under the age of 30. And people under the age of 30 are very good at producing children. And so these children would actually have the unfortunate situation of being born into slavery. So a lot of slaves came by that way. But they were born into that slave's family uh, and into that family that was looking after them or onto that situation. Now some of them were captured in war. What we do see here is the motivation of, of slavery wasn't around about race. That, that was very much later on. Racism was what marred uh, and underpinned and was a shocking element of 
the, the, the more modern slavery that we see in the 15th, 16th century. That wasn't the motivation there. If you captured, if you beat your enemies, then you had the right, not a moral right, not a justifiable right, but a cultural law, that you could take them as, as slaves. And, and people who were captured uh, came as uh, slaves. People actually sold themselves into slavery. And, and sometimes infants that were abandoned were taken by families who could afford them, and, and they were brought into uh, slavery that way. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, it's estimated in a place like Ephesus and other big cities like Corinth and Rome, one in three people would have been a slave. One in three people would have been a slave. Yeah? So if I point my finger at you, I would just like you to stand up. Okay, so you need to be watching. If you can stand up, if you can stand up, if you can stand up. Now, please, stand up. We're demonstrating something here. Yeah, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. You two can stand up. You two can stand up. You two there can stand up. I have another two here. Stand up. Chad and Diana, stand up, please. Stand up here. Stand up. You two. Uh, some more here. Uh, I'll have Phil's row. Two of you stand up in Phil's row. Tibetan, can you have some more slaves stand up, please? <laughs> and, and, and you see, suddenly, this is what a church has been like. You'd have been in a church and you'd look around, and all these people potentially could have been slaves. Thank you for showing us that, yeah? But in reality, in reality, because the slaves were in the situation they were, and because God loves people who are, uh, God loves all the people that He calls, but often people who are poor, people who are oppressed, they're called, it's probably that more people in the church should be been slaves than free. And at the same time, in that church where there was such a number of, of people that were in slavery, there'd have been people who'd been their slave masters. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. You don't want to do that. But you, but you get the picture. In that time, slavery was, was just a, a very much a normal part of life. And, and slaves made up an important part of that godless society. Now, now, the treatment of slaves was diverse. There, were, there, was, there was the good and the bad and the ugly. And, and you wouldn't want to be a criminal that had been made a slave. That, that wouldn't have been a pleasant place to be. But then you could ask yourself, is it a pleasant place to be in prison? And hopefully, when people are being uh, punished for what they do against society, there is a price to pay. And I'm not saying that that's correct, but that's the context of it. But some slaves almost became like family members. Now, of course, the master was in charge. Of course, the master owned them. They didn't have control of their own life. But they had safety. They had status. They had a role. And they had an opportunity to be free. And in some situations, people actually went into slavery so that they could get Roman citizenship. There were seen benefits to being a slave. 
And, and so where we are thinking from our eyes and our perspective, there's never a benefit to be a slave. You would never want to be a slave. But it was very different then. Now this passage is not a commentary on the Bible's position on slavery or the slave trade. And unequivocally, that is something that God's word and God himself is against. Earlier in this letter, this letter of 1 Timothy, Paul condemns the slave trader. He, he lists the slave trader with, in, 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 in verse 10 of chapter 1, that first chapter, with the sexually immoral men, uh, the men who practice homosexuality, there are liars, there are perjurers, and there's whatever is else contrary to sound doctrine. And in that list of people, there are enslavers. God's word, the Apostle Paul, condemned those who were enslaving others. To know how God intended life to be, we go back to Genesis. We go back to before the fall. We go back to the creation order. And slavery is not in the creation order. In the creation order, we see work, we see rest, we see worship, we see marriage, we see family. We do not see slavery. Slavery is not biblical or godly or righteous. And so we have this question. We have this, this, this question, this passage challenges us. Why didn't Paul condemn the slave trade? Why didn't he just say somewhere in Timothy or in Titus or one of these books for all the slaves to rise up and have their freedom? As I said in the introduction, the apostolic church was not greatly interested in social reform, but fundamentally in spiritual reform and gospel witness. Can you imagine how much of the Bible we would have had, how much the New Testament we would have had, if the Apostle Paul had seen himself the saviour of the slaves? We wouldn't have Romans. We wouldn't have Corinthians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians or Colossians. We wouldn't have these books. We wouldn't have this doctrine. We wouldn't have this teaching. Because at that moment in time, the important thing for the church to focus on was its gospel witness. Paul wanted the gospel to radically overhaul society. We have to get it the right way around. We still need it the right way around nowadays. It's the gospel that we need to radically overhaul society. Having a movement to overhaul society is like putting a sticky plaster on a broken bone and saying it's healed. It needs something more radical. It needs the gospel. And and for the gospel to have an effect on society, it needed a church that was focused on the gospel. And if a church is focused on the gospel, then everyone would be freed in the right sense. And so to untangle slavery, when one in three people were slaves, when it was very different to what it is now, wasn't the right thing, wasn't the big issue. But there was an issue that Paul wanted to address. 
And he went on to address it. So with a bit of an understanding of the situation then, I want to secondly to see slaves and the early church. There was this situation, it was a big issue in Ephesus and, and probably many of the churches in the major cities at the time. The, the slave and the master were coming to faith. And, and the slave and, and the master coming to faith meant that they were part of the same family. And the same family, the older men should be respected and looked out for. The ladies should be treated like mothers. And, and so how does this work out in a situation where society says there's masters and slaves? And in the church... In a true church, there should be no distinction between slave and master as to liberty in Christ. In the New Testament church, everyone was equal in Christ. And God doesn't differentiate salvation on status. He doesn't say, I need to have the masters or I need to have the slaves. God will have whom he will have. And he has them on the status of grace and faith. And grace and faith are a gift that he gives. He gave it to masters and he gave it to slaves. And he gave it to black and he gave it to white. And he gives it to tall and he gives it to short. And he gives it to people in the north and people in the south. He does what he wants to do. But this makes up this church. And so Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, we read very, very clearly there that there is neither Jew nor Greek. That was a big separation at the time. Neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's where the church was going. That's the church had to go in that direction, being one in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians 3.11, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all in all. And this was a teaching. And this teaching was exciting the slaves. And it was frightening the masters. Why? Because there's a big challenge of how that liberty was to be applied. And that's what Paul was wanting to address. Within the church, how could these diverse people be one in Christ? How could these diverse people get on in this, this, in this, in this, in this situation? And Paul had two particular situations in mind. He had slaves in general, and then he had slaves with believing masters. So in that congregation, where over a third, possibly half of them, were slaves... He was saying to them all, look, there's, there's something you need to know in general as slaves. And then he went on to say, there's something you need to know as, as, as slaves who have believing masters. And you can imagine it, can't you? They're, they're sat there, and in comes uh, the head of the house and his wife and the children. And then behind there's the entourage of slaves. And they come and they sit down in the pews. And, and they're there all together. And, and during the week, he's the master. And he tells them what to do. And during the week, they are slaves. But at the same time, they're one in Christ. How does this work itself out? And in 1 Timothy 6, Paul doesn't mince his words. He talks about those who are under a yoke as slaves. Some translations have, have, have tamed it down to be servants. Some have put uh, bond servants. But we have people who are 
in the possession of others here, in varying degrees, in varying situations. And what were they to do? They were to honor. To honor their masters. Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. They were to respect them. The slave was to respect his master. The servant was to respect his master. The employee was to respect his boss. And this is underlined in Colossians 3.22. Slaves obey in every way those who are your earthly masters. Obey is the, 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 the working out of honoring. It wasn't just good enough to say on Sunday, I honor you, master. But on Monday, you had to obey the master. And on Tuesday, you had to obey the master. And Thursday, on a Friday. And not by way of eye-seeing service as people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And I can imagine, if I was a slave, a servant, sat in the congregation, listening to that letter being read, I would want, I'd be saying this, why? Come on, Paul, why? Why should I honor this person? Why should I uh, obey him and, and not just by eye service? Surely when he goes out of town, I can have a bit of rest. Surely I am worthy and, and, and right to have some rest. Surely when he goes away for his lunch break, I can drop my tools and have a rest. Surely that is right for me. Why do I have to honor? And there's a gospel principle. There's a principle of the church's witness. So the name of God... And the teaching may not be reviled. If a Christian slave didn't teach, didn't treat his master with honor, there was a danger that God and God's teaching and the teaching of this word would be seen as a joke. If a Christian slave was lazy, society would see Christians as lazy. If the Christian slave was a thief, the world would see Christians as thieves. If the, world, if the slave was disrespectful, the world would see Christians as, and the church as disrespectful. If the slave was unreliable and useless and worthless, then the world would see the church as unreliable and worthless. And, and so what Paul is doing, is saying we've got to take this back. We've got to see the effect this is happening on the gospel. He's not saying whether slavery is right or wrong. He's saying if you are in that situation, we have to think of the gospel first and what your actions are saying about the gospel and what your action is saying to the name of God who is the one you should be fearing. You see, a slandered church loses its gospel power. It loses its witness. And in reality, it will never see social change. And the way that we see social change is by living as God would have us to live, no matter how hard or difficult it is in that situation. 
Because that's what God has told us to be. Because the important thing here is that God's teaching and the name of God is not to be reviled, is not to become a joke, is not going to be trampled under the dirt. The gospel changes lives and societies and not movements. And so these slaves were told because of the name of God and for his teaching, they needed to honor and they needed to obey their earthly masters. And some of these slaves on the Sunday were possibly sat next to their masters in the church. And it may even be their master that God used to bring them to faith. Because the master could say to all his slaves, right, we're coming to church. I don't want to. You're coming to church. That's it. Full stop. They came to church. And it may be because of that, these slaves came to faith. They were sat there listening. And, 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 the, and the preaching of the word took effect in their lives. And then they became one with Christ. And they became brothers and sisters to their masters. And then what's to happen? You, you might think, well, actually, what should happen then is that because they're equals, then the, uh, the slave could eat at the master's table and, and the slave could then order the master around and everything w- w- was changed. No. Verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. And if that's not enough, he ramps it up. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. And we have to remember that he's talking into a situation that is not 15th, 16th century slavery. It's that first century situation. So it is different. It's more like an employer-employee situation going on there to, to a greater or lesser extent. And so if the slave thought that they could have privileges because their master was the brother in Christ, if they thought they could slack off or take what wasn't theirs or have answer back, that was not where they were at. That they shouldn't be disrespectful. They had to serve the better because the person who was their boss, the person who owned them, the person who was their master was a believer. And they were benefiting from their service. And the question again is why? And the answer is exactly the same. So the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So just to sort of cut this down, a Christian slave was to be the best slave there was, regardless of their master being a believer or not. The Christian slave should have stood out in society. And people should have said, wow, they're the slaves to have, those Christians. They work hard. They're not disrespectful. They get on. They they, they work at it. And, and, And why should that be the case? Well, in this whole context of slavery, I want to point us this morning as a church to the ultimate slave. The ultimate slave. In Mark chapter 10, we read this in verse 45. For even 
the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came as the servant king. Jesus came as a slave, as it were. He had a job to do, and his job to do as Christ came to this world was to give his life as a ransom for many. And what was it to give his life as a ransom for many? Well, we can look into Philippians 2 and chapter 7. We get an understanding of what was going on here. Talking about Jesus, it says, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And that word there, servant, is the same word as we see here in uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 1, that's translated as slave. So some people rend it like that. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Can we get our heads around this? This is Jesus, God's son. This is Jesus, God's son, for all of eternity was within glory with God the Father in a sinless, perfect, glorious environment. And yet he comes to this world as a servant, as a slave, born in the likeness of men, born. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the world is born like a baby. He is a baby. His needs are met. His personal, physical needs as a child is met by his earthly mother and father. And he was found in human form and he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In those days, if you said to someone, what's the worst way to die that is said on the cross? There's death and there's deaths. And the death on the cross was the worst way. Jesus became a servant or a slave so that we could be freed from the slavery of sin. This is the gospel message. This is the good news. This is what changes people's hearts and lives. This is what turns worlds upside down. This is what makes a difference. This is what gives people in this room hope. And it's the gospel. And the gospel came out of Jesus being a servant. Of Jesus coming as a slave. And so the question we have to ask each and every one of us this morning is, do you know the servant king as your savior for yourself? Do you? Is Jesus Christ the one who left heaven's glory, who came and made himself nothing, who took on the form of a servant slave to be born in the likeness of man, who was nailed to the cross, who gave himself, is he your savior? Is the servant king your savior? Is your hope of eternal life, is your hope of sins forgiven in Christ and in Christ alone? And I know for a lot of you here, and many of you online, it is. And, and you're sat there thinking, how, why? 
Jesus, a slave for me. And it's just too much. We can look forward to eternity when we might have enough time to thank him for what he's done. But the question is still there. Do you know the servant king for yourself? And if you don't, what should you do about it? Well, if you don't, right now, you shall call upon the Lord. And if you do, you will be saved. That's God's word. That's a promise. God's promises never fail. And no matter how broken you think your life is, if you call upon the name of the Lord now, you will be saved. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you ask for forgiveness of your sins, your sins effectively will be taken to Calvary and nailed on the cross with Christ. And the punishment that you deserve, he will have borne for you. But it's not something you can put off till tomorrow. Because I only have the right to offer this to you now. Now is the acceptable time of salvation. And friend, you might not have tomorrow. But you have now. Repent. Call on the name of the Lord. Be saved. And those of you that are saved, those of you that are sat there thinking, this is an amazing thing that's for me, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, made himself nothing. He became a servant slave. He's born in the likeness of me. He was in human form. He humbled himself. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. He took my sins. And you're saying to yourself, wow, this is incredible. This is amazing. Thank God for it. But the question you and I should be asking ourselves now is if you know the servant king, King, are you living for yourself or for the servant king? If you've been saved by grace through faith alone, are you living for the Savior or are you living for yourself? Because fourthly, As believers, we're all called to be slaves. This is an oxymoron, isn't it? I've just told you that there's no slavery in the Bible, and I'm telling you, you're called to be slaves. Let's use the imagery and see what's saying here. The reality is we're all born into this world as slaves. We're all born into this world as slaves to sin. Romans 6 Verse 17 tells those people there that you were once slaves of sin. And everyone here is the same. We've all either are now or have been slaves to sin. And and, and the wages of that enslavement is death. The wages of sin is death. But that's not a death of just you come to an end of your life. That is an eternal death, an eternal punishment. If you're a slave to sin, in that Christ hasn't paid the price for your sins, then the wages of that sin, the wages of your enjoyment now, the wages of your lifestyle now, is eternal death, eternal torment, eternal punishment from the righteous, holy God. 
But if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, verse 18, he says, have been been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. There's a transaction. This room, there's only two statuses. It's not free and slave. It's not black or white. It's not from Africa or America. It's not any of those. It's this. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. And Jesus came as a slave so that his people would be slaves of righteousness and not slaves of sin. And you see, this is the big picture. And this is what Paul is telling those Ephesians back then through Timothy. He's saying this, yeah? God's name and the gospel is slandered when his people who he saved, don't live as slaves of righteousness. If you're a slave of righteousness, you need to live like a slave of righteousness. But sadly, the church is in such a mess because slaves of righteousness play and flirt and mess around like slaves of sin. 2,000 years ago, a slave of righteousness was demonstrated in how slaves treated their masters and how masters treated their slaves. Colossians 4, 1, it goes on there, doesn't it? After they've been told that, they should, that the slaves should work hard and treat his master correctly. And then it goes on to say, Masters, treat your slaves justly, fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so 2,000 years on, we haven't got this slave-master situation, but how should the fact that we are slaves of righteousness work itself out in our everyday life? How should it work itself out in everyday life? Why is he addressed slaves there? Well, what does it mean to us now? And for most people, most of their life, apart from some Nigerians, is taken up in work, not education. Working life is what most of your life will be. Working life is what most of your life will be. And Paul was addressing people in a working life situation. And this speaks right into our working life situation now, today. How do we show that we are slaves of righteousness in the way that we work? In the way that we conduct ourselves in society and particularly in the work environment? So workers, so students, how does this work out? Not by way of eye service as people please us but with a sincere heart, fearing God. You've got to regard your own bosses as worthy of all honor. And so if you're working, you arrive on time. If you are working, you don't steal your boss's time on the telephone. My brother runs a business, and, and one of the biggest problems in his life with staff is this thing. It's, it's this thing. It steals time. He is paying for their time and they're and it's stealing and it's wrong. 
And then if you're a Christian in a workplace, this should go away, unless that's what you're working on. It's not, it's not your right. The, the boss has bought your time. Chatting, messing about, extending your tea break for five, ten minutes because he hasn't turned up again. It is stealing. It is wrong. It is not doing what God has told us to do as slaves of righteousness. It's not eye-pleasing. We, we, we are to remember that God is watching us as we work. You should work as hard when you are being watched as when you are not. And you don't take things that are not yours. The stationery cupboard isn't your own personal Dennis Plaza. It is the boss's. If he says you can have a pen, thank him and take it. But if he doesn't, it's not yours. The phone, plus two, three, three, four, whatever it's from Nigeria, or Liberia, or the UK. You're stealing by making international phone calls on your boss's phone, unless he's given you or she's given you permission to do it. It's stealing. And that stealing is robbing God of his glory. And it's bringing the church into disrespect. And when you students cheat in exams, you're cheating God and his glory. And you know better than the rest of the people. And, and, and when you hand in work that's not your own, someone else wrote it for you. Or you bought it off the internet. Or you copied and pasted it and, and changed it around enough so it would go through the plagiarism test. It is theft. It is wrong. It is sinning. And it's not funny. Because that means that you are no better than the world around about you. And that dishonors God. And what Paul was saying to those people then, he is saying to us now, is so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Our witness in that world should be so, wow, that the world looks on and says, I wish I had more Christian students in my university. I wish I had more Nigerian Christians laboring on my work site because they're so good. And the reality is, the truth of it is, we've seen this happen here. There are some of you here with work environments and situations that have become a blessing to you. They were difficult in the first place. They were hard. But your work ethic and your working for God's glory has meant that you've got stable jobs and good opportunities because God has honored you for it. This is not easy and it can be especially hard and difficult in Cyprus. But this isn't what life is all about. Our life is about bringing glory to God. And as God is glorified in eternity, we will be able to look back in wonder. And bosses and managers, you should treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. And sadly, so often, those that have been oppressed become the oppressor. Now, I've seen that in situations here. There's someone who's come to the building site, they've been oppressed. And then some new people have come to the building site. And what does that person who was oppressed do? They come up two ladders and they make them do all the dirty work. They make them do all the hard stuff and they oppress them. And we're not to oppress people. That's not what it's about. We're to be just, we're to be fair. And why is that? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Or oh, it doesn't matter, it does matter. God's name is at stake.
God's glory is at stake. You see, friends, your workplace is your mission field. Not many people, a few are, are called into that particular role. But the reality is we are all in that role. Your workplace, your university is your mission field. Apparently there's a couple of young Christian lads in, in work uh, and their boss was getting really upset with them because they were always talking theology. They were always arguing about the end times. They were always arguing about the version of Bible to use. They were just talking, talking, talking all the time. And this boss was getting upset with them. And then it just went ballistic. Because one of these lads went missing. And he came back from, from the restroom and the boss thought, well, perhaps he's been ill, perhaps he's had a problem there, yeah? And then he was overheard telling his friend that he had a, a wonderful time in the toilet. I've just read three chapters, or sorry, four chapters of the Gospel of John. It was such a blessing. And that boss was appalled by those Christians. And his estimation of Christians was seen in that light. You don't evangelize in your boss's time, but your life and your attitude speak of Christ. And so you have opportunity after opportunity to evangelize in a righteous way. There's a story that I've shared before, but it's a long time ago. Uh, in, in the good old days before there was uh, word processors or computers, bosses had lots of secretaries. In big companies, you'd have a whole sort of room about this size, full of secretaries, typing up notes. And, and this guy who owned this uh, big business had a pool of secretaries, and he walked through his pool of secretaries to his big office at the far end. And every time he walked through this office, there was something that he was hearing that niggled him. All the typists were going, tack-de-tack, 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 tack-de-tack. And there's this one typewriter over there somewhere. And it's going, tack, 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 tack. And it got to him. And he called his, his, his chief of the secretaries in and said, look, there is one typist that's going faster than anyone else. And the person just goes, oh, that's a Christian. That was his answer. That's a Christian. And this guy thought, what is going on here? And he realized everyone was happy with the status quo. And she was typing to God's glory. And that testimony is what God used to save that man. Just the right attitude in the workplace is what God used. Your life is an advert for Christ and the gospel. Your life as a Christian is an advert for Christ and the gospel. Will you have a testimony like Naaman's servant girl who despite the difficulty of her situation pointed her master to where the cure was? Or will your witness be something that makes people revile the name of God and his teaching. I'm sure there's stuff that we need to repent of. And I'm sure there's stuff we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with. And I'd like to give you all a moment just to do that, asking God to apply this to your situation right now.